0: Hello, heroes. Welcome to Modifier. I'm your host, Megan Dornbrock. Heroes, this week I finally got to talk to Rob Stith about his game and AP podcast, The Orpheus Protocol. This episode has been a few years in the making, and this game has been many, many more years in the making. Rob has been crafting this game through so many iterations, it was great having him take me through that journey from miscellaneous game hacks to a focused play experience. And if that wasn't enough, Rob also has a long-running actual play podcast that essentially serves as a playtest record and a living change log for the game. We got to talk about how that has affected and augmented his creative process. There's a lot to learn about and from the Orpheus Protocol, so let's get to the show. Hey there, heroes. This week, I am joined by Rob Stith, and we are going to talk about the Orpheus Protocol.
1: Hi, Rob. Hi. It's really Hi. great to be here. Long time listener. First time bothering you Uh
0: Well, that's not true. <laughs>
1: <laughs> We've been talking about doing this for such a long time.
0: Yes, exactly. I was going to say, I'm so glad you're finally here. I feel like it's been years.
1: Literal years. Yeah, literal years i literal think maybe years. three or something from S- something the gen like con where we first discussed maybe doing this sh-
0: screaming at each other in a loud bar going a very loud thing room on the show? very yeah.
1: full of people yes mm-hmm.
0: that's gen con mm. <laughs> loud all the time well yes good so i'm glad that you're here uh would you like to introduce yourself a little bit some uh projects that you've worked on or places that people
1: might know you from sure thing uh my name is rob stith i well, I mean, the Orpheus protocols really the big one. Uh <laughs> It's very big. The time since that loud, very packed bar full of people has been very dominated in my life by this project. Uh it's really been the main deal. But I also have, you know, appeared though in an Orpheus capacity uh on the RPG Academy and on RPPR. Uh, in the Redacted Files podcast one time. I also w- depicted a very muscular merman daddy on <laughs> Swallows of the South one time. That uh, feels accurate. <laughs> which, which was Which was a great, great amount of fun. And let's see, what else have I done? I mean, I sort of orbit the actual play podcast space, mm-hmm. trying to make friends with people trying to be nice. Uh But yeah, Orpheus is my main thing. I've been working on a homebrew game for most mm-hmm. of my life now. And at some point a few years ago, it sort of finally took definitive shape as something, which I'm sure yeah. we'll be talking about here. But
0: mm-hmm. yeah,
1: the Orpheus Protocol podcast, it's on iTunes, it's on Stitcher, <laughs> it's on your stuff. Uh Get it wherever fine podcasts are sold. And I've got I mean, mm-hmm. the main campaign has 120 episodes as of this week. So. Jeez, that's uh, we're, amazing. We're going strong. We might, I don't think we're half done yet. Uh, it's going to be wow. a really, really big story when it's finished with. Uh, but that, that's, that's, what incredible. I've been doing. Cause you know, I, I'm every week put out an episode. It's actual play. It's got full music soundtracking. Mm-hmm. Uh, I edit very obsessively.
0: You're one of those. Yes. Oh, goodness.
1: (laughs) Well, I mean, the first actual play that I ever heard was edited by Kat, and I sort of took that as, okay, so this is the bar for Uh quality. This is how good it must be. It must be at least this edited in terms of ums and uhs and people... Saying part of an utterance and then second guessing themselves and having to go back and just, just do surgery on everything and manually space things out and time them better and stuff. That's fine. That's a normal thing that a normal person would do. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's been my strategy since then. I've been known to add, you know, 0.03 seconds of silence between two words to make it line up with the music better and things like that. I, I'm not a role model.
0: No. How, okay, I have, I have to know this is related to nothing. Uh, how long does it take you to edit an episode?
1: How long it takes to edit slash produce an episode is not yeah. really something that can be answered uh, <laughs> in one way because uh-huh. it really depends on a couple of things. I mean, obviously the more complex rules interactions and or confusion about rules occur in the recording, the longer mm-hmm. you gotta edit per minute of usable content. Uh, but Ooh, also, true. I fall into rabbit holes where if there are moments that are particularly dramatic, I get really obsessive about, as I said, the timing between people saying things, how long yeah. a fraught silence should last for uh, the interplay of the music and the voice and things like that. So there are certainly big outliers, mm-hmm. but gosh, let's say the episode comprises somewhere close to an hour mm-hmm. of actual play content. Assuming that there's no horrible stuff going on in the rules that made it really hard. Uh, on a good day, I can spend six times the amount of time as the output on just the cutting. Uh, but mm-hmm. so, so maybe six hours of that and then uh, some number of hours figuring out what music I have thousands yeah. and thousands of Creative Commons songs arranged in playlists by mood. Whoa. So I have the horror playlist, the mystery playlist, the sadness playlist, the Car Chase playlist, etc. Oh. Uh what a good resource. And so I you know take a probably way too much amount of time figuring out where the music should go Mm -hmm. rule of thumb that i've made for myself over the years is there should never be more than seven minutes of audio without music happening unless there's truly no excuse like and then at that point i'm looking at what i can cut because how can there be more than seven minutes in an actual (laughs) play episode that doesn't have emotional impact of some sort that sounds like probably just a lot of wanking at the table that we could stand to uh you know process down a little bit for the end user listening experience uh so got them millions of songs put those in there and then i sculpt the uh levels on mm-hmm. the music because instead of just finding the loudest part of the music and putting the whole track at a decibel level where you can still hear the voice that loses the quiet parts of the track so yeah i you know i fade the music in and out and in and out second by second by second to to match uh properly the volume of the voice that's going on as well uh to a greater or lesser degree depending on uh essentially the dynamic range of both the music piece and what's going on vocally that can be easier or harder uh and then as i said i sometimes really get obsessive about the timing of various Mm -hmm. things and that's and also sometimes there are vocal effects uh, and things like that that need to be done. Uh, if someone, for example, is telepathically communicating, I like getting some reverb and echo and stuff yeah. like that. Um, and various other things. I've made some crazy monster voices by playing around with the different plugins that you can use in Audacity. Um, so do you do
0: all of this in Audacity? Oh, yeah. Rob! <laughs>
1: I I mean, that's the one I taught myself. It didn't cost money and I don't know how to use anything else. So
0: that's, no, that's very fair. I'm Uh, still learning. That's terrifying and amazing. It's like
1: George R. R. Martin's using like the ancient windows to like with the green screen, right? Oh, but yeah. So it's, it's hard to say. Like what I can (laughs) say is between the actual, like let's say prepping a session, recording a session, processing the files, cutting out things. Spacing things out for timing, adding music, fitting the levels for the music, doing intros, outros, blah, blah, blah. Like making the Orpheus protocol is at least a full time job. And yeah. then I'm also, you know, developing the game, uh, and doing the social media and blah, 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 blah. Um, I, it, maybe, maybe this says something about me. Uh, I've certainly turned it into a rather consuming workload. I worked it out. I'm, I'm really making. A very small amount of money right now, uh, right. given the number of hours that I work on it. But I, it's much mentally healthier for me to be desperately working on something that I that I care about, yeah. Instead of comfortably working on something that I don't care about, and my brain slowly slurrying mm-hmm. its way out of my ear onto my you know shoes, right. uh, which is what I was doing before.
0: Yeah, and that, that difference is so, so noticeable. Yeah, it's, um,
1: yeah, <laughs> it, it's not a, it's not a regret. It's just a, a reality is like, you know, if I want to go somewhere for a weekend or something, like it takes weeks of working extra in advance yeah. because yeah. It's independent content creation, baby. There's no holidays. There's no weekends. Like you just should always be working and anything that you ever do self care wise carries with it the risk of guilt. At least if you're, you know, Midwestern Protestant raised like me, (laughs) uh, you know, you can, I, you know, I'm not religious or anything, but there are certain, uh, attitudes culturally that I think are pretty. Mm -hmm. Uh, indelibly stamped into my bones. So.
0: Yeah. I can appreciate that. So hopefully we can, we can make this a little bit better for you by the end of this episode. Yeah, uh, exactly. <laughs> so, so what is the, let's do the elevator pitch let's then for it. Orpheus Protocol and then we'll get into all of the bits.
1: Uh, the very short elevator pitch is what if the X-Files were being investigated by the X-Men? Um, The Orpheus Protocol is a cosmic horror and occult espionage RPG where the players take on the roles of operatives of the enigmatic Orpheus group, a secretive society paramilitary organization that sees to the investigation, containment, and exploitation for profit of supernatural phenomena around the world. Ooh. So it's very much like the X-Files, except being looked into by people who themselves have powers and are sometimes more than human uh interesting so uh you could you could say it's kind of like yeah the x-files turned up to 11 maybe delta green mm-hmm. but more comic booky, uh mm-hmm. that sort of thing uh i didn't actually funny story did not know delta yeah. green existed when i started working on orpheus uh mm-hmm. and i really thought that i was doing hyperbolic twin peaks and x files fan fiction with my game when really what i was doing was making delta green with superpowers uh <laughs> which is fine there's plenty of room uh in oh, this yeah. tree house for everybody and i'm not doing explicit lovecraft stuff in in my right. game so it's not uh it doesn't serve really the same purpose
0: yeah. I, I feel like that's something that comes up with a lot of creators is, you know, partway through making something you realize, oh, well, this does this thing that I do, but it doesn't, it, and no two games are going to do the exact same thing. And I think that's, that's totally cool and totally okay.
1: No, and it's fine. This isn't really a new new thing either. Georges Poulty pointed out that there have only ever been 36 dramatic plots in literature in the history of, of storytelling and <laughs> That's actually okay. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's like, you know, nobody nobody gets really mad if somebody makes a miracle new medicine that's super awesome. Nobody is, like, all hipstery about it mm-hmm. and says, like, well, you just used the same elements on the periodic table that everyone else did. Like, it's the same <laughs> thing. Uh, so it's honestly – that's something that yeah. – the imposter syndrome is still very real, but, like, that's a good thing to think about if you're a creative is that, no, everybody's working with the same – cultural terroir and uh a lot of the same tropes and base assumptions and it's what you do with it that counts
0: i like that analogy too that's very good uh everybody go keep making your game
1: yes please Um, (laughs) so what did uh how did orpheus protocol start well there's sort of two points that it started at one point was when like 12 year old rob just had an epiphany of it doesn't make sense that having more armor makes you harder to hit in D&D. It should make the damage lower, not you harder to hit. And that was the seed <laughs> of everything, honestly, because at that point on, I started looking for other games. And mm-hmm. due to the nature of the first game that I really found and latched onto, uh, for those of you playing along at home, Atomic Fusion by Hero Games, mm. I think. Uh Artelsorian, maybe? But like... A bad game that's just awful. Um, but part of its badness was that the GM really had to like make a lot of custom shit for the game because it was not yeah. very well detailed. Like you, the, there were plugins for everything. So the implication was if you wanted to play in a different mm-hmm. setting, you would make your own plugins. And like there it was. I was starting to hack the game before I even really understood what hacking a game was. Yeah. And it wasn't too long after that, that I started working on my own system from the ground up and it went through a million iterations over the years, played a ton of campaigns in a ton of different settings, but there was this, there was a distinct point. This is the second point of Orpheus's origin where this system that I didn't even have a for sure name for that I'd been working on for years and years and years sort of developed a focus, a sense of purpose And this was at a point in my life that I was very, very interested in sort of this new wave of more mechanically complex and interesting board games taking the world by Mm -hmm. storm, Euro style games and things like that. Uh, and also in that same like summer had my mind blown apart by sort of a eureka regarding ludonarrative harmony in games. Uh, and this was shown to me by the game Dread. Oh, okay. I, it was just, it's such a one to one, right? Like, it's a Jenga tower. You do dangerous stuff, you make pulls on the tower. Tower falls, you die. It's very scary. The mechanics of the game make it more tense and scary. And realizing that mechanics could be built to support an intended emotional impact in a story that's being told, uh, right along The same time that I was seeing like how fun resource management could be in games, (laughs) uh, that Mm -hmm. was definitely like the yin and yang that came together to make Orpheus. Uh, there are only a couple, there are a couple things from the original, uh, homebrew system that I'd been using for years and years that have made it in. Uh, to the Orpheus protocol, but everything has been in in service of that philosophy that the game should mechanically benefit the intended, uh, story impact of the style of story it's designed to play. Uh, and resource management is fun because I'm a dork. Uh, and, and that's, and that's, that's when it really like started becoming its actual self, I think. So that would have been Hmm. about gosh. Four years ago, at least.
0: Okay. Had you been playing uh, with other people with this system before then at all? Or just kind of...
1: Yeah. Uh, I'd, I'd yeah. been running all kinds of different campaigns in my homebrew thing. And once it started metamorphosing into what would eventually be Orpheus, yeah, like home all home games I played were in that, uh, learning about it, uh, interrogating okay, whether cool. it was working or not. Usually it wasn't uh mm-hmm. you know and and we we kept keeping the good stuff and kept cutting out the bad and eventually there was the beginnings of a game
0: yeah were you playing in like different types of settings or were oh, you yeah. already Oh, yeah okay. all kinds of stuff oh, cool. uh, we
1: we did epic fantasy we did modern you know slasher movie style uh horror mm-hmm. various things yeah it was uh I was guilty of the horrible, in my opinion, uh sin mm-hmm. of writing the generic system mm-hmm. at that time. Yeah. Uh I would not recommend anyone do that now. I think it's very important for games to support the kind of story, the kind of tone mm-hmm. that they're meant to convey. Uh, but my game, The Orpheus Protocol is the name of the game, but... Blood and Breath is the system, much as like the D20 Mm. system is what you play Dungeons and Dragons in, or perhaps uh, the Genesis system is what you would play uh, various games in. It certainly could be used to make other games, and someday in the future I probably will use it to that purpose. Mm -hmm. And it isn't a specific genre as much as it's a specific tone. It is a game system that is meant to convey tension and mounting dread and desperation. So, mm, the Orpheus Protocol, okay. you are, you know, special agents fighting the occult. Uh, so anything on that Jason born to Cthulhu spectrum would fit in this game. Uh, and I would feel the same way about any game powered by the same central mechanics. Uh, so eventually, if I make a fantasy game out of it, it's going to be a dark fantasy game. It's going to be <laughs> yeah. a lot more Conan than it is Lord of the Rings.
0: Very cool. All right. So you you've talked about how this harmony should come about between the mechanics and the narrative. Was there anything in particular mechanics-wise that sort of clicked this into place for you as you were building it?
1: Yeah, I think so. Uh, Basically, one of the most important things that would be, there are some things that might change if you make in some hypothetical future if I made 10 games off Mm -hmm. the blood and breath system. One thing that would always be the same is strain. Um, Each player character has a reservoir of mental strain, physical strain, and spiritual strain, which are derived from the six attributes of the game, okay. uh, two of them mental, two of them physical, two of them spiritual, and they determine your pool of strain. And strain is a spendable resource that you use not only to boost your effectiveness with checks with the associated attributes, but also to soak down damage of the three different types being taken and so you have to choose whether you're going to be more effective or keep it back to be safe from bad things happening to you. Mm-hmm. Uh, and that tension between being conservative or taking risks mm-hmm. is a big part of the game and not overspending your strain and, you know, deciding when it's worth using the resource. That's like one of that's probably the beating heart of the blood and breath system and part of what makes that work is that this system is very thick graded numbers are small getting another number is important the maximum attribute mm-hmm. a human can have is five. Oh wow um and what you are rolling on any check is three fate dice or fudge dice so two pluses two blank sides and two negatives mm-hmm. so you're looking at 0 to 5 added to a roll of the dice that averages to uh, 0 and can be from minus 3 to plus 3 and depending on your skill level you can spend 1 to 3 points of strain for that amount of bonus so spending Mm. 3 strain and adding a plus 3 to something where the dice only swing by 6 yeah, and maximum attribute in the game is 5 that's huge but you also don't have an infinite amount of strain and like you can certainly spend it much faster mm-hmm. than it comes back yeah. very easily. And so it, what ends up happening with the thick graded numbers, uh, which also helps avoid just modifier creep and like doing too much math. Yeah. <laughs> um, but also, you know, all the numbers matter a lot. The dice don't contribute. I mean, luck is important, but it's not like a D20 where like, how lucky you are on the die is more important than what you bring on your character sheet until like much later level. Um, how good you are and strategic you are about managing your resources in Orpheus Mm -hmm. is actually more predictive of success than your dice luck. Somebody who pretty consistently rolls badly, but is very smart about the various resource systems in the game Mm -hmm. is going to have more success than someone who's lucky, but careless. Yeah. And I guess that segues into what these resource systems are because yep. it's not just strain. That's um, my next question. <laughs> there are, I I really went ham on the whole resource management thing. And what I have is several interlocking systems of resource management that play out over different time frames. Okay. So you have resource systems that matter in a scene, resource systems that matter over a session, and resource systems that matter over the entire campaign. Uh, though it is perfectly possible to play one shots and short adventures in Orpheus, uh, there are things that specifically will become super important in the long term as well, mechanically. Cool. But on the scene level, one thing you gotta worry about is initiative. You don't just roll and see who goes first. Initiative, you make a check, you see how much initiative you have, and the initiative is a resource that you spend to take actions. Uh, bigger, slower actions take more initiative. Uh, it's very much like feng shui in that way. Oh. Play passes to the person with the highest present total of initiative. So if I'm at the top, but then I do some huge power move ridiculousness that costs half my initiative, maybe a little while before I get another turn. Whereas people who are taking tiny little actions might be able to do a few of those before it comes back around to me again. Uh, so that is a, that is another thing I'm trying to do in, in Orpheus is, uh, create as many points of tense decision-making for the player as possible. Oh, good. I want people to feel like what they choose to do matters, uh, and it kind of helps build that sense of dread. uh, Because any resource that you have that you spend, as you spend it, you have less of it. And that feels very (laughs) Uh nerve-wracking. And having those split-second things in combat, of course, where we're doing a lot of time dilation... Yeah, you, you choose how to spend your initiative. That's a resource system. Also on a scene level, you've got skill features. Skills in this game don't add to your total. Uh, n- not really. Um, your attribute determines what you're adding to the dice. Mm-hmm. Skills determine how much strain you can spend. Uh-huh. And if you can do special things that make your results more predictably good and efficient. Um, for example, you can always spend one strain of the appropriate type to boost by one no matter if you're skilled or not okay the first two ranks that you buy uh d and c these ranks used to be one through five but people kept being new players particularly were so confused and trying to add their skill as a number yeah. to the check uh that i've embraced the D C B A S mm-hmm. uh rank thing that you would seen like jrpgs <laughs> yeah. that's that's what skills are now good <laughs> uh so rank D lets you spend an additional strain, so you, your spending threshold is now 2. Uh, C gives you a spending threshold of 3, so that's at that point you can actually boost by 3 with strain. And at that point, that's the most actual raw power that's ever going to be added. Uh, the remaining three ranks just make you more efficient and more predictably uh, successful. Mm-hmm. So you've got your rank B where you can re-roll a check once per scene with that skill. So, like, you roll an attack, and it's bad, and you're really desperate to beat that monster or whatever. Once per scene, you can just reroll roll uh, and, and take the higher of the two results. Rank A allows you to spend one strain of the appropriate type to ignore all negative dice faces on that skill for the entire round. Uh, so it's extremely efficient. It doesn't actually raise the maximum amount that you can get on a check at all, but it makes you much less likely to do poorly. And then, you know, the ultimate one, of course, is rank S, where mm-hmm. you have three temporary strain that can be used on checks of that kind per scene. So you can be very resource efficient while still being powerful. Uh, and there are a few other things. But at the scene level, you're choosing how to spend your initiative and you're choosing when to use your skill features uh, to give yourself an edge. Uh, and those are all very important, you know, tactical decisions or strategic decisions, depending on how long you're planning on playing for. And at the session level, so you're talking to, like the whole time you're sitting down to play. Mm-hmm. That's where I would say strain fits because you're almost never going to get much strain back uh in a session. You mostly have to like have stress free days and sleep and stuff to get strain back mm. beyond like just getting a little bump of strain <laughs> at the end of a game session. So that's something that you're sort of. Keeping track of and trying to ration out Uh for a longer period of time. And also your character's motivations. Your characters will have principles and bonds uh, to start the game. Things they really care about. People they really care about. And when something comes up that's particularly relevant to one of those things that really motivates your character as a person. Mm -hmm. If you and the GM agree that it's relevant, you can go ahead and just add a D3 to your result, which is, of course, quite powerful in this system. And that's a once per session thing. You can each each motivation Mm. can only be invoked once per session. Okay, so you have to choose, like, when are you going to do that? Uh, Do you want to do it now? Do you want to save it for something that you suspect is going to be worse (laughs) later? Uh, And there's some opportunity cost involved there. And then at the campaign level, the whole long campaign, all of the archetypes, uh, which is like your classes but we'll get into that a little bit later. Yeah. Uh not not necessary for the blood and breath system. Archetypes are an Orpheus thing. This mm-hmm. is this is some this is the supernatural powers uh power sets that your characters get in Orpheus. Uh, in in the Orpheus protocol, I should be careful. There's an old white wolf game called Orpheus, not that I'm mad about that or anything. <laughs> um but humanity using supernatural abilities tends to cost a point or more of humanity mm. to use you start with a hundred and every 25 you go down depending on your archetype you start manifesting symptoms so an occultist someone who uses the non-euclidean cyclopean eldritch powers that you would expect of like any good lovecraft uh, antagonist mm-hmm. um will start getting gray patches on their skin and maybe developing some weird mannerisms that put everyone off and, you know, much later spend a lot more humanity. Oh, Hey, why do I have a tentacle coming out from under <laughs> my clothes and an extra eye on the side of my neck? Um, and you know, werewolves get more werewolfy, which is start, uh, you know, craving the flesh of children mm. and things like that. Sure. Sure. Um, Gotta be careful with your powers. The powers really do give you an edge and allow you to survive and win and stuff. But overuse of powers is very dangerous in the long term. And to give you more tense decision points for your resources in downtimes between adventures, you have to choose how you're spending your time between uh, combat training, self-care, and medical care. Mm. Which the combat training will allow you to generate a pool of temporary strain or special strain that can only be used in combat, but doesn't cut out of your actual pool, which is awesome. Yeah. But if you're doing that and only that you're not getting these other things, self care, whether it's seeing your friends, uh, attending to religious observances, meditating, getting back to nature, whatever it is that makes you feel more yourself helps you restore your humanity. Uh, and obviously medical care helps you heal and get rid of injury penalties and things like that. And you have to choose, like, are you just focusing on one of these things? Are you trying to split your time up? And like, you have to make that resource decision as well. Um, so there's a lot of resource management, but there's never, if I'm doing my job, there's never too much Mm -hmm. at one time, like at one moment that you're playing, there's never too much to keep track of.
0: Okay. Okay. Have At any point in the process so far of playing Orpheus Protocol or playing uh, the blood and breath system with however you do, has there been any point where you were worried that you had too much?
1: Yeah. um, Maybe not specifically too much resource management, but Mm -hmm. there have been various rules that have been either excised or simplified. The whole process really has been... I draft up rules of stuff that we encounter in play Mm -hmm. that I feel that there should be some sort of ruling on. And invariably we find that the rules are too crunchy and too detailed. Mm -hmm. And then I find ways of smoothing them out of making them more efficient, making them more streamlined and easy to use and cutting back. So it's a, it's an overwrite revise, overwrite Mm -hmm. revise back and forth pendulum process all the way through, which is, also how it works for me if I'm doing any kind of prose or screenwriting or anything like that too yeah. um, so that's been how it is we've sort of locked ourselves in at this point that I'm not adding new rules at this point I'm only <laughs> making things simpler from from here until the point that the, that the book is printed okay
0: cool and then I was also curious with the you know slowly giving up your humanity as you use these powers uh, is there a point of no return
1: yes if you hit zero you're not a player character anymore Whoa, that's cool. And that, and it specifically says, um, that there's some GM discretion about like, is that truly the end for your character or does your character become a side quest, like a big mm-hmm. mission for your friends to try to retrieve you, Ooh. depending on what's going on. Like, it's, it's up to the group what's going to be the most interesting, of course. Uh, yeah, but sure. that actually reminds me of another rule that I feel like I'm sure a ton of people do this as a house rule or whatever, but, I don't think I've ever seen it just written out, and I wrote it out because I think it's very important. And that's the borrowed time mechanic. There is a rule in the Orpheus Protocol that basically states, if a player character, according to the rules and interactions of mechanics, dies in a way that mm-hmm. they and the GM feel is narratively unsatisfying, they don't die And instead die as soon as is possible at a narratively convenient, narratively satisfying point. They cease gaining XP, they keep playing, and they die in a way that serves the story. You're not going to, unless you want to house rule that rule out of the game, Mm -hmm. you're not going to like roll badly- and just oh that whole storyline is just screwed now yeah. i guess everyone just gets to have less fun uh i feel like that happens a lot i think i feel like that's the kind of situation where a lot of times people fudge dice yeah oh man and <laughs> uh and like if if you feel like the game has not served the story i mean if you're if you're wanting to fudge the dice that means that you feel that the game has not served the story in that instance mm-hmm and I'm just writing it into the game. Hey, if the game screws up your story in this particular way, relax. Work out a way for it to not suck. And that's how it will happen. Uh, awesome. But it's not like, oh, you're willy-nilly. It's not Calvin Ball. Like, you still play the game by the rules of the game. Yeah. But when that one really fraught instance <laughs> that I think is the number one cause of, of people fudging mm-hmm. uh, comes up. Let's not have a big fight about it. Let's not have an existential crisis about it. That character is on borrowed time. And, that's the, and, great. and you, you make it work in the story and then they are gone. Then they die.
0: I, I um, love that that's in the rules. That's very, and, good. and
1: borrowed time also applies to losing your last point of humanity. Uh, if it Ooh. would, if it would be more dramatically appropriate for that last point to go away a little bit later. That's what happens. It gets kicked down the road until it can, you know, hurt the players in their feels the most.
0: (laughs) Good. My favorite. (laughs) Let's talk about Orpheus Protocol specifically a little bit. Um, Sure. You're hurting everyone in their feelings. You're making us all very stressed out uh, Mm -hmm. and anxious, nervous wrecks. Uh, what, What kind of characters
1: can players be? Just like what archetypes are there? Yeah. There are lots of them. Ooh. There are two that I'm not going to tell you about okay. because they may be stretch goals <laughs> uh, because they're not quite fully designed yet. Cool. But I would love to put the time in. Uh, there are two archetypes that don't have a humanity loss mechanic. Mm. Like the, their, their abilities do not cause you to lose humanity, although there are other things like doing really dark shit <laughs> can yeah. cause you to lose humanity, too. Uh, if you are forced to in the line of duty or if you're just evil. But, uh, so soldier is just your, I'm very trained and good at combat and the use of weapons and things like that. And it was important to me that they could be just as strong as anyone else. Uh, because I don't want people to be required to play as something supernatural if they don't want Hmm. that said, there are things that are very rad, but, um, you know, they're very good at fighting. They're very good at, um, the logistical side of operations sneaking into places doing Mm -hmm. stuff like that uh so basically you know you're john wick jason Bourne type guy Mm -hmm. and cyborg also does not have a humanity loss mechanic but orpheus as an entity has access to some very powerful cybernetic technology um that you know you can you can get an advanced optical targeting system hud like wired directly into your like brain through your optic nerve.
0: Yeah.
1: Uh, you got your classic g- Goss projectile gun arm, integrated life support systems, stealth technology, uh, just storage of extra ATP that mm-hmm. can overload your system and you go really, really crazy mm-hmm. for a short time and then get really tired. Yeah. Uh, things like that. Uh, so those two are a little bit different. Um, actually, you can mix archetypes in this game. Oh, the cool. amount of theory crafting is absolutely insane. Uh, but the way that the archetype mixing works is you can only have two archetypes with humanity loss mechanics and you have to designate one as your primary one. Uh, but that does mean that you can mix and match soldier and cyborg abilities with any character because that's not a mystical thing, you know what I mean? That's not, that's not something interacting directly with your soul, that's just either equipment or training or both that anyone could have. I I am
0: very happy about the cyborg thing. Yeah, I just want to call that out, that there's there's no humanity loss with being a cyborg. That's very cool and very good.
1: In an earlier version of the game, there was humanity loss Mm -hmm. on it, because I was like, well, okay, soldier, there shouldn't be, but this feels like more special than Mm -hmm. soldiers with like the with the crazy stuff that they're able to do it felt a little bit odd because it wasn't really the same as the other ones but i didn't want there to be three categories with three different ways of doing the mechanics Mm because that seemed like a little out of control uh and then i got called out on twitter about how cybernetics is often represented in this way and like i wasn't you know i don't really sci-fi is a big blind spot for me actually like i'm a very big horror and fantasy guy uh and i didn't realize like how exhausting this can be for people who have Mm -hmm. prosthetics or Mm -hmm. like you know depending on your philosophy like different gender expressions and things like that this can be very annoying and hurtful to read about in like cyberpunk fiction which i don't read so like i just didn't but apparently this is kind of like An annoying constant thing. Mm
0: -hmm. Yeah. Uh, and I was like, well, I don't want to do
1: that. So I, I really looked at cyborg and I was like, you know, this doesn't have to be in the same category as all the other ones. It can be closer to soldier. Uh, and the difference that is split is that there are a couple abilities that you don't spend humanity on, but they reduce your maximum humanity for having them. But those are only the ones that actually change the way that you think. Okay. Um, so nothing like having a gun in your arm doesn't make you any less human. Uh, yeah. having subdermal armor doesn't make you any less human. Having the HUD that tells you how to best effectively murder everyone around <laughs> you all the time does have a drain on your humanity or okay. like it puts a little bit of stress on it. Yeah. Uh, as does the thing that like floods your body with combat drugs and numbs you and uh, you know, makes you hyper aggressive for a short time. That's those costs. Those costs essentially your maximum humanity goes down by a bit mm-hmm. for each rank of those abilities that you get, but everything else is exactly as soldier. And in fact, soldier itself has at least one ability that you have to invest humanity in, like you lower your maximum, uh, because there are abilities based on having long experience in combat situations mm. and sort of divorcing yourself from the natural fear and empathy responses involved in those situations and turning yourself into a killing machine. Yeah. Uh so but yeah, Soldier and Cyborg are not mystical. Nice. And and they do not make you less human. Cool. Uh they may make you a bit troubled in some <laughs> ways, depending on what abilities you get and how you use them. But let's talk about the fun magic stuff yes please um, hermeticist uh this is someone who follows the uh, path of hermes trismegistus mm-hmm. uh the rumored uh you know creator inventor of alchemy cool and like he's a syncretic figure he's a fusion of hermes and thoth uh mm. credited with scribing an emerald ta- tablet with the foundational disciplines of Thurgy, astrology and alchemy Thurgy is speaking to angels Astrology, of course, is predicting the future by way of stars, and we all know what alchemy is, thanks mm-hmm. to uh, anime. Mm-hmm. Uh, but they, you know, make alchemists fire and have homunculus that they make, those little companions. Uh, they can yep. make a philosopher's stone and cease to age. They have panacea, which is like a healing potion. Uh, so they're a very magey, uh, yeah. but very crafty mage. Like, they don't do the big evocations. They work in their labs and make these amazing things. So that's that's Hermeticist. Uh, hero is actually an archetype. And by hero, I mean like Heracles, Gilgamesh, mm.
0: uh, Beowulf,
1: that okay. sort of thing. Uh, their abilities focus on great feats of daring and athleticism and uh, single combat prowess. Uh, but they have a resource to power their abilities that is based on embodying a heroic virtue and falling to a heroic flaw mm. you have to kind of do both good uh, and and the more you do the more likely you are to fall to your heroic flaw because this is very pattern on like the the sort of inherently tragic narratives of demigod heroes in various world mythologies so that's a fun one medium you talk to ghosts you summon ghosts to do stuff for you um and do a lot of spooky stuff and cool. psychometry, reading objects and bringing things back from the dead temporarily and all that cool stuff. Obviously fun if you want to do the spooky stuff. I said occultist mm-hmm. already. That's the Lovecraft caster more or less. Uh, you know, Lovecraft was a racist piece of crap, but he had a lot of really cool imaginative ideas that are <laughs> public domain now. Yes. Uh so Pathokinetic, this one's horrifying. This is someone who supernaturally influences people's emotions, so think Kilgrave from Jessica Jones. Great. Um, But, you know, try to not be such a monster. I mean, you'll lose more <laughs> humanity being a monster, but they're like the face-of-the-party stuff with supernatural uh, performance enhancement to every bit of that. Cool. Um, and I should mention, social influence is a system in the game. You attempt to figure out what the other person wants. And if you are, if you do identify some of their motivations and work them into your pitch in the role playing, mm-hmm. uh, your deception, your persuasion, your intimidation, et cetera, are more effective, uh, if you play on the things that the person cares about. Mm. Uh, and any NPC is on a chart which goes from like, it is antithetical to my identity to possibly do what you want me to do or believe what you want me to believe all the way to it is antithetical to my identity to not believe what you're saying or not do what you're asking me uh and you can only move them one step on that with a successful skill check unless you also play on a motivation of theirs or Mm. in the pathokinetics case use supernatural powers to have more of an influence than should be possible Uh, but it also allows you to do good cop bad cop like because each skill can move them one thing. So if you lie to them and then play on something they want with like a, with a presence check to persuade them of something, but then you also intimidate them, Ooh. like you can, you can have a greater impact, but you have to role play all those things. Uh, although of course we're not going to be ableist about role playing. Like what counts as role playing it is something that should be determined at your table. Um, yeah, you know, that's, based that's on good. the preferences of the game, uh, group psychic. Classic, you know, you're going to astral project, you're going to read people's minds and create illusions and mesmerize people and stuff like that. Cool. Um, telekinetic. So you mix those together, you get 11, I suppose, from Stranger Things. You yeah. get force projection, force bubble, gravity, pyrokinesis, uh, all that kind of thing. Uh, true faith is an archetype. And specifically... While the imagery and names of some true faith abilities may suggest a Judeo-Christian faith in the way they're written here, mm-hmm. uh, players and GMs are encouraged to reskin and retitle abilities to just fit any faith that they want. There's no cool. specific faith that has power in the Orpheus Protocol. It is that you have faith that is the power. Uh, nice. It is your conviction that makes you supernaturally powerful and any uh any faith can use all these abilities and sort of re and anything can actually be reskinned uh we'll get to an archetype later on there's a character in the Orpheus Protocol podcast that is a Wendigo mm-hmm. but he is very specifically a native man for whom that would make sense and not be problematic okay uh whereas the default for that archetype that he's using mechanically is not Wendigo because that could be seen as appropriative right um okay. but you know reskin if if you would have more fun hell yeah do it uh <laughs> i'm not gonna be mad vampire thrall so this is someone who's been fed on by a vampire but hasn't fully turned yet they have basically all kinds of cool vampire powers uh but if they hit zero they become a big problem humanity wise <laughs> yeah werewolf you know mm-hmm. you, you. that's that's a werewolf. They also are a big problem if they hit zero. Uh, yes. And they're very bruisery, tanky, uh, scary monsters. Weapon bearer. This is fun. This is a person who has a bond to a legendary weapon like Excalibur, oh Calibur, and the Spear of Longinus, Kusanagi yes. no Tsurugi, etc. cetera. This is uh, great. They, <laughs> they have, they have, Orpheus collects these weapons, or maybe they have found it in their own lives via their backstory, but. They have a bond to the ancestral procession of spirits of past wielders of a legendary weapon uh, that they carry. And all of their abilities have to do with their supernatural prowess with the weapon. Um, oh, my God. So if you wanted to, you know, make a hero slash weapon bearer and give them, like, some sort of, you know... <laughs> oh, my God. You could make your crazy paladin that way, yeah. I suppose. Um, but... Uh that's a fun one obviously i'm i I love that archetype. It's not I don't know of many games that have something like that no um, that but I really like it uh drugger uh that's the one that got reskinned into Wendigo. It's a mm-hmm. winter cannibalism hunger spirit thing, kind of the rogue of this game. They're sneaky, they're melee damage bursty, scary, scary mm. guys okay. um but yeah, I just decided to do the droger because that's from my own culture, and I'm not you know. No one's going to get mad at me about using something that's from where I am. Yeah. Uh, so like that's, that's fine. And they, and they're, and they're not the same as Wendigo, but like mechanically in Orpheus, they really can be the same. They're both winter cannibalism madness (laughs) spirits. Uh, so they certainly sort of fit the same archetype in that way. Mm -hmm. Um, and, and it makes sense because like any culture that you know, developed in a place that had nasty winters is going to have these stories, sadly, because they will have faced some really nasty problems. Witch? What good would this game be without a witch? Right? <laughs> like, blood curse, evil eye, familiar, witch's brew, you know, yes. that flight, the ability to fly, because that's a classic power of witches from, like, all cultures all mm-hmm. over the world. Uh And so, you know, that's that's an important thing that I wanted in the game. As I said, soldier, cyborg, uh, and then a couple of secrets down the line. Good. We like secrets. Lots of characters, though. And given that you can uh, mix yeah. these archetypes as you level, uh, you can't have more than two archetypes that have humanity loss mechanics. And you do designate one as your primary. And that's the one that like you start developing symptoms from as you lose humanity.
0: Mm. Uh,
1: but given that you have... 15 or 16 archetypes, two of which can be mixed and matched with anything. Like, yeah. And it gets even crazier when you get into the specifics of how the archetypes work. Like, there are millions of potential character builds, which is something that was really important to me because I love theory crafting. Yeah. Um I really love, like, playing with character customization and, and, and like, really tweaking mechanically what my character can do in video games, mm-hmm. tabletop RPGs, you name it. And so... I sort of in this way designed the game that I would like to <laughs> screw around with forever. That's important.
0: It's important to make the thing that you enjoy, not in in any small part, but because you're going to be working on it for a while. Oh so, yeah. But yeah, that also that also comes through, you know, when you're excited about something, it it definitely shows in the work. And like as you were listing all of the archetypes, I'm sitting here going, I want to make that one or maybe uh-huh. that one. Maybe that one though. So
1: very, well, and then, then cool. you start getting into the combinations, and it just mm-hmm. gets real crazy.
0: Oh um, yeah, that's it. Sounds very fun, <laughs> cool. So I want to leave some of the the mysteries of the of the uh, podcast to heroes to go and listen to for themselves, since it's been so so exquisitely crafted. But I do want to talk oh, about. Um, yeah, I, I do want to talk about though. It is it is a living playtest. Yes, this podcast. Um, it, was that the intent when you started?
1: Yeah, pretty much. Well, I mean, the campaign was meant to be the beta test okay. for the rules. Uh, once I realized what setting I was working on for the finished game mm-hmm. and these foundational things about like the direction I was taking my homebrew homebrew game in,
0: mm-hmm.
1: then it was off to the races and I wanted to do a campaign to like really... Interrogate all the different things that the game could do and figure yeah. things out, uh, mostly because, as you said, like you're going to be spending a lot of time on it, right? Mm-hmm. Like I didn't want to run 800 one-shot adventures with a million different people. I wanted to get people who were fun to play with and play a long freaking campaign because yeah. that's more fun for me. Yeah, and that's how I wanted to do the testing. But I was like, I love AP. Why don't I give it a try? Why don't I try <laughs> recording it and see what happens?
0: <laughs>
1: and now it's my job. <laughs> yeah. So, yeah, it, it is beta testing in plain sight. I cut out so much rules, Jabber. Mm-hmm. It's, it's meant to be presented as a story that can be enjoyed by people who don't care about the game mechanics so much. Mm-hmm. But you can, if you're listening carefully, you can hear rules terminology evolve as the game goes on. Uh, and that's, that's what we're doing. We're figuring the rules out and doing the beta testing as part of an ongoing epic narrative. Like I said, it's 120 episodes and we're probably approaching maybe the halfway point.
0: Gosh. Did you, did you know it was going to be this long when you started? No.
1: no I, <laughs> I didn't really expect. Uh, but yeah, we've just, the world that I've built and the ways that some of the players have kind of interacted with it have really set off these huge chain reactions of events that. We are still having fun exploring, and apparently listeners are having a lot of fun yeah. listening to oh, um yeah. so uh that's what we're doing and I mean, honestly, I'm having so much fun with this that I'm probably gonna keep podcasting even mm-hmm. long after the game is completed very cool. um once we I don't know when we'll finish this campaign, but when we do, I will probably come up with what's the next thing that we're going to do, yeah because this this whole long form highly produced detailed editing Mm -hmm. thing like is definitely especially in the I would say horror slash sadness porn uh, (laughs) niche that Orpheus has fallen into I think (laughs) it's serving a need like a niche in the market that is underserved there's not a ton of actual play that's like really serious yeah now this is not to say that people don't crack jokes in Orpheus they do but they crack jokes like people crack jokes in stressful situations yeah they laughing so that they don't cry. Uh it's not like jokes about the GM's pizza or out of character stuff. I mean that happens too, but that doesn't get left in the podcast. Yeah. That's blooper stuff. But there's not a ton of really serious dramatic actual play. There's not a ton of horror actual play. Uh and it just for whatever reason the niche that we have developed the the sort of vibe in our campaign is horror and then just heartbreak like that. Those are the things that tend to happen. And <laughs> oh, good. Uh, for my part, I think what it is, is when you really look very frankly and unflinchingly at how dark things can be mm-hmm. in this world and what is horror, but the dark cousin of fantasy and what is fantasy, but allegory, Uh, you know, the the monsters are the bad things in our world and trying to understand our place uh yeah. in relation to them. Uh, if you make it really horrific, if you make it really sad and make bad things happen, people have to deal with it. Not only is it super cathartic, when the players get a win, like an unambiguous win mm-hmm. in this kind of game, in this kind of setting, it is so awesome feeling. <gasps> um, I, I think that's my favorite thing in fiction. Like when everything is stacked against a good outcome and mm-hmm. the world is a bleak crap sack, <laughs> and somehow, you know, the good guys pull it out, and like some type of innocence is protected, or some type of justice is served. Yeah. Um, I feel like you know the hard-earned victory is like one of my favorite things in fiction. Uh, and like you know the the one time that everything goes right when it never goes right, mm-hmm. I think back to um the two-part episode in like. The first season of the revival of Doctor Who, mm. uh, with Chris Eccleston, uh, the empty child and the Doctor dances where he's so happy, he's dancing and crying because uh, this time everybody lives, just this once, oh. everybody lives. That's what I want to be able to create uh, in the game—is that feeling. And you have to work up to that. You know, there's a lot of groundwork and a lot of misery that you have to crawl through to make that hit, yeah, uh, and and be worth it. Uh, but that's what I love doing.
0: <laughs> Crafting misery.
1: <laughs> yep, Rob Stith feels criminal.
0: <sighs> Correct. <laughs> do you um do you think that recording this campaign and spending so much time with the audio has affected your the way you work on the game?
1: It certainly made it way slower <laughs> oh. uh, because it's just, you know, it's a ton of work getting the episodes out. But mm-hmm. I don't think that that's all bad because I think that it gives me a lot of forced reflection on how things are working and not working. I can't yeah. really make any snap decisions in, in this because I'm going to hear how a rule works or doesn't work a 100,000 <laughs> times. Yeah, So I'll be pretty sure what needs to be changed if not exactly how to change it
0: cool would you recommend this to anyone else operating in this fashion
1: (laughs) i mean if you're a lot like me sure like Mm -hmm. but here's the thing i'm i'm not making great money i'm (laughs) scraping by a little and if my wife didn't make more money than i did i'd be screwed and i'm working my ass off all the time and I don't do very many free time fun things compared to like most yeah. people that I know. Uh, so if you have something that you're very passionate about creating and if you have anxiety and depression problems that get way, way, way worse, if you're working in an office job that doesn't fulfill you at all and you're willing to eat cheap food and never do fun things. uh Sure. Yeah. Do what I do. <laughs> but like, I feel like it works for me but like yeah. there are a lot of specific reasons that it works for me and I'm not sure that it would for everyone.
0: That's very fair.
1: Be very self-aware and honest with yourself about yeah. how you engage with your you know creative process because like just because you're working hard on creating something doesn't mean that it has to be your job. Uh it may be better for you mentally and emotionally for it not to be.
0: Depending. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I, I absolutely agree. Experimenting with some of that myself these days. So, <laughs> uh, but let's let let's talk about this Kickstarter because we are at an hour, and I mm. want to make sure we talk about. Yeah, let's this, do that. Cool, cool, Kickstarter. Cool. So, is it the system that's the campaign, or is it Orpheus Protocol? The
1: Orpheus Protocol. It's going to be okay. a full. I mean, all the mechanics are there, of course, but the setting-specific mechanics, setting information, GM advice rad art blah 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 we're talking probably like a 400 page hardcover book Ooh, beautiful Um, yeah it's gonna be i'm going to cry when i open the first box and see them yeah i i I know this for a fact yeah as you should we're launching on may 7th Mm -hmm. and it'll run for 30 days as these are want Mm -hmm. and uh yeah it's gonna be a make or break moment for this thing because i just i don't don't make quite enough money on Patreon to yeah. really quite make it. And if I can bring in a little extra income on this Kickstarter, I will be safe for a year, basically, Uh while I think of the next thing I'm going to make or yeah. try to reach the next plateau of audience uh, or or whatever. It's a very niche thing, but I, I'm very – this isn't exactly apropos to the Kickstarter exactly, but I'm very proud of my fan base. I love them so much. I don't have the biggest audience, but the people who like Orpheus tend to really love it and engage with it on a really deep, passionate level, and that is just incredibly fulfilling to me. Uh, more than being popular would be, I think. Uh, were I given the choice of one or the other, I think it would be the fact that there are some people out there for whom the Orpheus Protocol is their number one entertainment thing. That is so mind-blowing and crazy, but so cool. Uh, and makes me feel humbled and really quite emotional. Oh. It's so, it's so great. Um, but you know, hopefully this Kickstarter will let more people see it, get it in front of more eyeballs, not just for my financial security, but just because I do feel like this thing that I have made, both the game and the podcast, mm-hmm. If you want something like it, it's a very, very good version of itself. Uh, it It is niche, but if you're into this kind of thing, I think it really does fit very companionably in that role, in that type of entertainment. And, you know, really, what else could I ask for? I'm really glad of how it has turned out so far. Oh,
0: that's really wonderful. I'm very excited. I am excited for this to get out in front of more people. I think that it's, I think it's, a. Uh, you, you, you say that it's niche, but I think there's definitely people who are looking for this who haven't found it yet, and I hope this is what does
1: it. Well, I mean, tell you what, something that didn't suck for me, demographically speaking, I mean, it remains to be seen how the mm-hmm. cards will fall, but a certain company that does stuff that's horror-like mm. with crunchy mechanics that ends up playing kind of like a superheroes game at high levels, really, really shitting the bed yeah. all over the place may leave certain people looking for a game of that type that's not quite so fraught. Uh-huh. Uh, and, like, that certainly happened right before I'm going to Kickstarter, so we'll see if that helps.
0: Yeah, it very well might.
1: Um, I mean, I'm not going to, like, claim to this or whatever, but there have been people who have said to me, like, well, your game's kind of, like, it's not mechanically the same, but uh, the vibe was it's like, what if White Wolf but good? And Ooh. I was like, I am very humbled by that. I won't, I will not say who it was, but it was someone who I admire. Who yeah. Said that. Oh. So, Aww. Uh, so was that was a lovely great. thing. Yes, it was a great, it was a great thing to to hear from somebody who I uh look up to in the role playing biz.
0: Awesome. As for the Kickstarter, is it pretty much the the book? Is that what we're looking
1: yeah. at? Okay, that's what we're doing in this. I cool. would love to do supplements and. Like GM aids and some other stuff like that, but that would be smaller Kickstarters later on. Sure, yeah. This book is going to be a complete product with everything that your group needs to play. Fantastic. Uh, and I am going to make it as pretty as possible without literally spending every single dollar <laughs> of the campaign on art, which I really could yeah. very easily because I pay artists yeah. well. Yeah. Uh, and I pay artists who do very good work that I want a ton of. And I know already that it's going to be a self control challenge. <laughs> Very cool. To not be like 200 more
0: pictures, please. Yeah. <laughs> I don't think anyone will complain. But yeah, don't be careful. <laughs>
1: yeah. Yeah. Oh, wait, I'm in the red on this. Uh Oh, <laughs> it's yeah. so pretty. Yeah, um, I, uh, I can't wait actually to launch the campaign uh, on Kickstarter, even just to show the art that I've commissioned so far. Uh, I just have Ooh, a few yeah. pieces that I did, uh, in advance and like, I love the art so much that I got. Um, I'm so, so happy with what they did. Oh, That's the best feeling. Yeah. Well, well, I stick figures are beyond my acumen. So yeah. to me, it's like actual sorcery. <laughs> yeah. Watching people like take prose descriptions that I write to them and make them into an actual thing. Magic. It, it
0: is. It is literally. Yeah. Is there, is there anything else about the campaign or about the Orpheus Protocol that you want to leave us with?
1: Oof. If you want your feels to just be stomped upon <laughs> for a while, but then occasionally wonderfully uplifted. If you like cathartic, dramatic, dark, high-stakes storytelling, you know... Give the Orpheus protocol a look on iTunes, Stitcher, wherever you prefer to get your podcasts. And if you like games that are not insubstantial, like if you're, if you're willing to negotiate a certain level of crunch, we're not talking Phoenix command or anything like that. <laughs> but, um, if you like games that really have some meat on their bones uh, and you want to do some horror role playing, you know, give us a look. The book's going to be pretty, and it's going to be full of cool rules that you can use to play a cool game. Nice,
0: well, cool. We will have links to the Kickstarter because it should be going as this episode is out, and heroes are listening Hooray. to it. We'll have that link. We'll have links to the to the podcast. Rob, where can we find you online?
1: You can find me on Twitter at Lord of the Stith. That's mm-hmm. S T I T H, my last name, uh, or follow the actual show at Orpheus Protocol. Uh, There's a Facebook group for Orpheus, but really I'm mostly posting the same stuff that I would on Twitter. Twitter is my main online haunt. However, uh, the bio section of the Orpheus Protocol Twitter account has a permanent link to our Discord server where people literally just seem to talk about the Orpheus Protocol 24-7. And it's crazy to me, and I love it. (laughs) Awesome. And it's some of the nicest people on the internet. Uh, For some reason... Uh, The dark, brutal, (laughs) miserable horror fantasy kind of system and storyline have attracted Mm -hmm. really kind, empathetic, and very diverse people. And Mm -hmm. I really love that about the fan base that I've attracted so far.
0: Yeah, something about, I guess, being in touch with your own feels and how much they are currently being stomped helps. (laughs) Yeah,
1: maybe so. Yeah.
0: Very cool. Uh, So well then we'll put all those in the show notes as well. Wonderful. Um, Thank you, Rob. This has been very cool.
1: Thank you, Meg. It's been a long time coming. Yeah,
0: absolutely. I'm glad we finally did it. Huge thanks to Rob for chatting with me. And you can find his links and the Kickstarter links in the show notes on our website. That's all for this week, heroes. Follow Modifier on Twitter at ModifierPodcast, or send us questions, comments, and suggestions through email at ModifierPodcast at gmail.com. Modifier is part of the OneShot Podcast Network, an incredible family of RPG podcasts, including shows like this one. Join hosts Hannah Schaefer and Evan Rowland as they redesign their first role-playing game. Design Doc is an experiment in public participatory analog game design. It's fun, it's messy, and you're invited along for the ride. To find out more about this and other shows on the network, visit oneshotpodcast.com modifier's theme music was created by my favorite boffin kat greenfield whose myriad talents are on display at catgreenfield.com. join me again in two weeks for another episode of modifier see you then